Hey, Scene Vault listeners, are you a NASCAR collector? Well, we've got two great magazines for you. First up, we've got the 75 Greatest Drivers. Last season, NASCAR added 25 drivers to its Greatest Drivers list to celebrate their diamond anniversary, and we partnered with them to help tell their legendary tales. This 116-page magazine is packed with the stories that made each of these drivers the greatest we have ever seen. Printed in full color on glossy paper and delivered to fans inside a poly bag to protect its contents, this magazine will sit on the coffee tables of NASCAR fans for years to come. There are also several different covers to collect, including unique designs for Richard Petty, Dale Earnhardt, Jeff Gordon, and more. We've also got a few remaining copies of the 75th Anniversary Magazine, featuring hundreds of pages of photos, profiles, iconic stories, and much, much more covering every single year of NASCAR. Both of these are shipping in high-quality poly bags to protect your collector's item. Get yours today at dailydownforce.com shop. That's dailydownforce.com shop. Hey, y'all. Rick Houston here, and I want to tell you about my new show, the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast. I've partnered up with the state of North Carolina Department of Natural and Cultural Resources to help uncover the history behind moonshining mountain boys, professional wheelmen, and the backwoods and city lights of the Tar Heel State. In the first episode, I sat down with Winston Kelly at the NASCAR Hall of Fame for a little behind-the-scenes gossip about Junior Johnson's engineering skills. He's got two things in his hand, pipe wrench and channel lock pliers, and they weren't new. They had been been around the block a time or two. What's the first deal they built, I bet? No, no. You know, I think they were, they had, the the pliers had been red before, but paint had worn off. And in the second episode, I talked to a professional hillbilly, a.k.a. Dr. Daniel Pierce of UNC Asheville, to find out the real history of moonshiners and their battles with the revenuers. He wrote about one of his experience of trying to chase down this uh, this bootlegger and this this souped up car, and he he complained that the government gave him these piece of crap, cheapo cars, and that, that were really no match. But he thought he was doing pretty good, and then the guy just hits it and just takes off and practically disappears. But then the guy makes a bootleg turn uh, and comes back towards him. And as he said, it was a game of chicken, and I was the chicken. And so he ran off the road. And actually, he was the guy who, who caught Junior Johnson at his daddy's steal when Junior got tangled up in a, in a barbed wire fence. So check out the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast, available on YouTube, dailydownforce.com, and all of your favorite podcasting platforms. And be sure to check out my regular show on NASCAR history, the Scene Vault Podcast. Hey there, NASCAR fans. Have you got your copy of the latest edition of NASCAR Pole Position Print Magazine? If not, there's no better time than now to subscribe at PolePositionMag.com. NASCAR Pole Position is the only print magazine covering NASCAR. Officially licensed by NASCAR, NASCAR Pole Position Magazine is published throughout the NASCAR season, and each edition is an instant collector's item packed with great feature stories and photography. The magazine is even mailed to you in a poly bag for those who love to collect NASCAR memorabilia. At PolePositionMag.com, you can even find past issues available to purchase. Get your subscription to NASCAR Pole Position and get great NASCAR content delivered straight to your mailbox throughout the season. Learn more at PolePositionMag.com. That's PolePositionMag.com.
Hello, this is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast, your source for all things NASCAR history. Hello, my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to another episode of the Scene Vault Podcast, home of the Mark Ashenfelter Fan Club. (laughs) (laughs) He's got a fan club? Yeah, absolutely. We're it. Oh, the two of us. (laughs) Go Ash. Yeah, go Ash, man. Steve, as we've gotten into the new year, this is our first episode of the new year. I'm sure you've made your new year's resolutions. I've made mine. But what the new year also means is that we're now just a few days from you finally being awarded the Squire Hall Award for NASCAR Media Excellence. And I understand that you had a meeting at the Hall of Fame yesterday and turned over some artifacts. Would you ever have thought that any possessions of yours would be considered artifacts? Uh, No, I did consider that someday in my future I would turn over personal items, but those would be to a jailkeeper, you know, (laughs) (laughs) something like that. But uh, no, it's it's very, very uh, humbling to uh, win this award, especially when you consider so many of the people who have won it before me. I'm very much in great company and very, very proud of that fact. Yeah, as a matter of fact, I was asked by the Hall of Fame to turn over some personal items for the exhibit that will be there for the whole year. And so I dug up a few things. I got got my desktop nameplate from my days at Griggs when it says I was executive editor. And I turned that over along with the George Cunningham Award for Writer of the Year, the Henry T. McLemore Award for uh, Lifetime Services to Motorsports Journalism, a couple of copies of Scene. (laughs) From the Scene Vault. Exactly right. (laughs) And a couple of volumes of uh, Illustrated, its sister publication, and a, a couple of good personal photos, myself with Bobby Allison and Richard and Linda Petty. So uh, all that was turned over to the hall. I hope that uh, people will enjoy looking at it when they come and see the exhibit. Okay, Steve. Now, have you worked on your speech any? No, not a Come word. on, man. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm going to just get up there and wing it. I mean... Uh, Are you really? Yeah, the, I've, I've not written many speeches in. Lord help us. <laughs> <laughs> I'll have to watch my language, but other than that, I think I can do it. I'm telling you, I'm looking forward to hearing what you have to say. Just remember... The Scene Vault Podcast. I'll, I'll get okay. it out there All somehow. Right. And we also got to figure out a way. Never mind. I'm not going to politic here. So, Steve, something that I want to do. I got the idea from the PETM podcast. I would like to take the opportunity to thank our patrons on Patreon. Brock Beard, author of JD, the definitive book on JD McDuffie. Aaron Bearden of the newly formed MotorsportsBeat.com. Andrew Sherwin of the PETM podcast. Andy Pittenberg. Charles Horn. Daniel McFadden, Florian Dvorsky, the Jeff Gluck, Jeff Hess, Mary Egan, Michael Corvin, Robert Keplinger, Scott McLaughlin, Stanley Smith, but not that Stanley Smith, (laughs) and somebody who goes by the name S1 App Shoes. S1 App Shoes. Hey, he can call himself whatever he wants to, as long as he's a patron supporter. So It's the same thing. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Now, thank you guys so much for your support. If you could consider being involved in that, patreon.com slash the scene vault podcast. So Steve, this week we have an amazing interview with Buddy Parrott. I'm not surprised if there's a bigger character in all of racing. I have never met him. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'll tell you what, I've been looking so forward to sharing this interview. Let's go ahead and jump into it. All right.
Now, buddy, I got to tell you, I did a little bit of digging. And according to a feature by Pat Howell in the August 3rd, 1978 issue of Grand National Scene, you were a swimmer at your high school. What was your best event? Actually, I started, I, I did start. I won a, I won a, a little contest in Gastonia. That's where I started my diving, I guess, at Limeburger Park. So you were a diver? Yeah. Yeah, I was a diver. Man, I was too lazy to be a swimmer. <laughs> <laughs> no, we, I did swim. I swam a rel- on the relay, but uh, my friend of mine, Lou Sullivan, who was a diver also at Mars Park, we used to go give diving exhibitions, and people, We, I mean, we went to Country Club of Asheville and a couple other Two or three places people would call us in the summer and ask us if we'd come put on a show. And so I was the, Lou was a straight guy and I was the clown knight. Okay. <laughs> and so that's how I started. Uh, uh, well, we would do a straight, straight bit first and all the straight, the good, you know, the regular dives. And then I would come on as a clown diver. It was funny. It was funny to me and I hope people enjoyed it. But it, some of the dives that I did were, Quite. I mean, they were. They hurt you. <laughs> I had bruised ribs and whatever, you know, from the way I hit in the water. But I got a letter. I mean, I got a text from a guy in uh, Riverside, California, and he in that text he said, "I remembered you one afternoon doing a diving exhibition with your uh, with your bib overalls on." I said, "I can't imagine," you know. The things, because this just it didn't happen at just at uh, California. I mean, I did it. I did it at Dar- uh, Darlington. Steve Wade may have been around, or I know Tom Higgins. But I would just start a start a bit. And uh, matter of fact, we were in uh, Texas one time, and uh, Marty Robbins was doing the singing. And uh, and I came on. I started doing the crazy diving act. <laughs> Marty Marty quit playing his guitar. He said, "Heck, that's better than the guitar. That's better than the singing." <laughs> but uh, but anyway, that was the fun thing. That that was you could have fun like that. And uh, if you wanted to hear about the escapades or whatever about me, uh, uh, my real claim to fame, I guess. Um, Maybe the night I went off the top of the motel at uh, in uh, Griffin, Georgia. I mean, the top of the motel, not second floor or whatever, but, you know, I was on the roof. And I went off the roof, and, and Buddy Baker was our driver. It scared Buddy Baker so bad that he, he didn't even come out of his room. He thought I was dead. We had to go up there and get him, get him out of his room. And... Uh, and he said, don't you ever do that again. But what he didn't realize was that I did it twice because back then I wore glasses and I had my glasses and my shoes I left up on the roof. I, everything else I had clothes on. And uh, so I, uh, crazy me, I uh, I made it the first time. So I said, well, now I got to go back up there and get my glasses and my shoes. So in order to do that, I had to climb up the back part of the hotel on this little skinny rail, it was a chore to get up there. You had to swing yourself up. I I was pretty well, I mean, I was a pretty good man back then, you know, muscles and all. But anyway, I got up on the roof and I had a guy, I called him, I said, come here. I handed him my glasses and my shoes and stuff. 
because I looked at what I was going to have to do, and I, I felt safer jumping back in the pool than I did trying to swing myself back over and land on that rail. Because if I had a fail, if I had fallen, then I would have been out in the yard or on the concrete. And so I went off again. So I actually did it twice that night. So the next day at Atlanta, at the Atlanta Speedway, it wasn't who was running good or uh, who qualified the best or how's your car doing. Boy, did you see Buddy Parrott go off a damn <laughs> And uh, trust me, if I had not had prior practice, I should say, because I used to do it in my act at uh, at at the Biltmore at, uh, up in uh, Asheville, and I'd go off roofs and stuff and jump in the yeah. pool and stuff. But again, if you did that now, um, well, first of all, you probably wouldn't have a job very long because the guy say <laughs> that crazy guy. But Harry, when I worked for Harry, Harry was a fun guy, you know, and he, he loved to have a good time, and he loved to see his crew laugh and enjoy themselves. And trust me, I... I put a lot of smiles out there. <laughs> well, that brings up a question that we had on Twitter. Bob Laird, at for Bob Laird, asked, what is your best Harry Hyde story? Your call on editing out the profanities. <laughs> so, Buddy Parrott, what is your best Harry Hyde story? Oh, man. I don't know. There's so many, you know, that that uh, Harry put us in a situation and all, but I... I guess the best story and the best thing that embarrassed Harry the most was one time we were in Islip, New York, with Bobby Isaac, and we won we won the race in Islip. And to in order, I mean, for the trophy, we got a um, a fully, uh, I mean, the the rocks, the filters, everything, everything but the fish, and they were going to send those to us. Uh, a, an aquarium, okay? And this was a big aquarium. This wasn't a little small thing. So anyway, I told Harry, I said, Harry, how do, we're going to put this aquarium on the truck? He said, we're not putting that thing on a truck. We're going to put it on top of the car. I said, I put it in the back of the truck. I said, well, not in room because we're all riding back there. He said, well, strap it on top of the car. So we went over and we got a couple of bungee cords and stuff and we didn't have t- ratchet straps and stuff like that back then. You know, you just had bungee cords. So I, I, we'd had me and Harry Lee had had about two bungee cords attached to this thing, and here comes Harry. He's ready to go. All right, boys, you got that thing ready? Well, not quite. We need a few more bungee cords. He looked at that thing. He said, "Ah, it's okay. It's good. We didn't have but three straps on this big monster thing, and it was in a box. I'll never forget it. Dick May." Harry was driving, and Dick May was Dick May was sitting over on the right front seat. You gotta love any story that includes Dick May. Dick May, uh, we're flying down the road, and no, normally like Harry drove, and so all of a sudden we heard this bloom, 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 and I looked back, and there was cars going everywhere, right, left, slamming on the brakes. I don't know how many wrecked, but. Anyway, so Harry looked in the mirror and he says, what was that noise? I said, Harry, we just <laughs> we just lost the aquarium on the interstate right there, the freeway. It was uh, the um, 
New Jersey Turnpike. And so Harry starts to pull over. Dick May hollers at him, hit him on the shoulder, says, Harry, gas this thing up. Let's go. Let's get out of here. said, if those people catch you, they'll kill you. (laughs) (laughs) So that was one that really stuck in my mind. There were so many, like I said, Harry would put you up to anything to have a to have a laugh. I mean, from the times at the at the shop when when streaking was um, popular, you know. Well, me and Ray Fox Jr. we got we just took all our clothes off, and little did we know that they had called uh, they called across the street and told the waitresses over there. <laughs> Harry called, told them. You girls go stand at the window. You're going to see a show here. <laughs> and we didn't, me and Harry, me and uh, Raymond didn't know that. Well, we got naked and we ran from the front of the building, uh, the Goodyear building, and ran all the way around to the back part of the, our shop, naked as Jaybird, except for our, our boots. And uh, <laughs> trust me, Harry got a lot of laughs out of that one. So he, uh, I guess that was sort of payback, I should say. But I'm going to tell you what. He was, uh, he's the, one of the best I ever worked for. We worked, man, I mean, we worked hard. There wasn't that many people on the team, but everyone put out 150%, you know, and, uh, and we won a lot of races and had a lot of fun. Well, buddy, I don't know how we go from streaking to the next question I'm going to ask, but... 1974, there's an accident in the pits at Talladega, and Grant Adcock spins into Gary Bittenhausen's pit stall and pinned Don Miller up against the car. And from the account in Grand National Scene, it sounded like you pretty much saved Don's life. Well, um, you know, my first job in, out of high school was I worked for a company, a glass company. And trust me, uh, if one of those big plate glass broke over your head, you had to know what to do. If guy get his face cut or his arm cut or uh, you just, you reacted to it. And I did it a couple of times, you know, uh, uh, actually uh, uh, one of my glazers that worked with me and all, he piece broke and cut his arm real bad. And I put a tourniquet on his arm and, you know, it stopped the blood. And so I guess that's where I, where I picked that up. But what happened was that, yeah, uh, Grant Grant hit the water. You know, it wasn't wasn't Grant's fault because there wasn't a speed limit on on pit road, and he was just coming in normal. But he hit hydroplane and slammed in the back of, like you said, slammed in the back of the Benton House's car and and pinned Don. And when I got there, uh, I mean, we all Harry Lee, everybody, uh, Raymond, all of us ran to the car. Matter of fact, there were a couple of the crew guys actually. Uh, they didn't have a jack. They picked the car up, and one of the guys were trapped underneath the car. And so uh, a leg or something, you know. But when I got there, Don's leg was uh, just dangling by uh, by his pants leg, so to speak. And uh, and he was gushing pretty bad. And I jerked my belt off and made a tourniquet out of it. And um, and whether it saved his life or not, I don't know. But, uh, but the medics, all of them said that uh, if I hadn't stopped bleeding, he'd have bled out before. 
anybody got to him. I do want to ask about you joining Die Guard in the 88 car. You joined them, I believe, in like April of 77 or so. That was your first time working for a team that had pretty much a legitimate shot to win every week, had a shot at the championship, and you also wanted to be a crew chief for a team that could do all those things. How much pressure did you feel at that point? Well, let me just say this. We were at Darlington, and I was actually a tire changer. They hired me to, to change tires for uh, for Daryl, and uh, David If was crew chief. If had gotten a job uh, offer from uh, MC Anderson for the next year, and so uh, after the Darlington race or the win, Jim Gardner came to me and said, uh, we want you to join our team. I said, well, I said, right now I got I got two teams I'm working for. He said, well, who's that? I said, well, um, a guy, Dale Earnhardt, we're running him on dirt and running a guy named Hayward Plyler on dirt. And he said, yeah, but this, this is a big outfit and all that. He said, I said, how many races y'all won? <laughs> he looked at me. And so I said, uh, you know, we win every time we go up there <laughs> and load the car. And I said, a win's a win, man. But uh, make a long story short, uh, I did accept the job. And uh, they didn't name me crew chief. I was changing tires and, and working, as, and uh, flags should have gone up, you know. They didn't really name me crew chief or give me the, uh, what did I just say, the uh, uh, salary uh, or whatever until I won a race. We won a race in Nashville, Tennessee, and they named me crew chief. So I guess if you say, you know, if you get something, you got to earn it. And that's what I did, I guess. And and along with with uh, with a great crew, and, and uh, trust me, Darrell Waltrip was one hell of a driver, okay? I got to say that. He wanted to win, and I wanted to win. And we won a lot of races, about 24, I think, 25, I don't know. And now, you won some races with Darrell, but late in 78, there were some rumors going around that he was going to go drive for Harry Rainier. And at one point, it seemed like it was all but a done deal, and he was going to go replace Lenny Pond. Do you remember anything about that? No. Uh, the only thing I know that Darrell had a couple things, a couple irons in the fire. And I'm not going to get into who said what or what was done, what was said. But Darrell and the gardeners, especially Bill, never hit it off. You know, they were just two different people. Bill was real, real flamboyant. And and maybe that was a clash because Daryl was real flamboyant, so to speak. But Daryl had earned his, uh, he's, he'd earned his wings, you know, through, um, you know, uh, racing that 95 car. And plus he had a set of wings in the, in the garage all the time with him. And it was Stevie. She had the wings. She's an angel. So um, I think a, a lot of her spent a lot of time on pit box with her. But the problem was the relationship between ownership and Daryl. He's the one that started looking before I did. You know, I mean, I, don't, I wasn't looking for a job. I mean, I, we were winning races and, and doing things, and he had proven himself. But the reason I know Daryl left was, was for bucks. If Harry Rainier offered him a job, there's a lot of good coal money there and— uh, and uh, of course, Waddell Wilson. Waddell Wilson's no slouch. He needs to be in the Hall of Fame because he's a good guy. If Waddell and Daryl had paired, I think it might have worked. 
I'm not going to say it would have worked, but the best place he went was with, with Junior. Daryl sometimes got out of control, but Junior could reel him back in. Boy, <laughs> I love Junior Johnson, man. We, uh, matter of fact, uh, raced hard against him, raced hard with him, and never had a bad word with him. 1979, you went at Michigan. You guys have a 229-point lead in the championship battle. But things start to kind of spiral downwards after that. Was there anything in particular that was going on, or was it just bad racing luck? We didn't change our mindset any. Uh, you know, it could have been that, uh, you know, we, we went through some problems with, uh, you know, with, with wrecks. We had we had some wrecks. We had some uh, problems with uh, maybe chassis. Well, I don't say maybe, maybe you know, because uh, Daryl had a lot to do with, with what we did as far as chassis setups and things like that. But uh, I don't know. Uh, you know, it's really hard to go back to 79 and, and pinpoint what really went wrong. But I know that uh, I still re- I wanted to win. If I had hindsight, I would have thought more, a lot more, about how to win a championship instead of how to win a race. It almost meant more, being consistent. Uh, I used to saying one time, you know, we're like a B-29. We're either humming or we're bumming. But uh, Well, what you guys accomplished that year, you – Go to Martinsville, Daryl's leading, but he blows an engine, smacks the wall. Buddy, you guys change an engine in 11 minutes. How is that possible? 11 minutes, 36 seconds, I think it was. <laughs> well, not to be exact or yeah. anything. Again, I mean, we didn't have 100 people. The crew that was there, they worked in the shop hard. We went to the racetrack and raced hard. We had practiced. Gary Nelson helped me a lot with that with that situation. Um, Butch Stevens, he was like a big old hog underneath the car. I don't mean that, Butch, by saying that. But what I meant was he's wallowing in the dirt and the mud and the, and, the, uh, and the oil and stuff, and he didn't care. But Butch was the under-the-car guy and one of the main guys on that, on that change because everything, everything under there was hotter than, than it was on the top side. But, uh, but we'd practice. We had a motor swinging on the on the engine hoist, but we we were ready, you know. Because back then it wasn't Robert Yates's fault. It was, you know, if we tried to pull too much gear, uh, and if Daryl missed the shift, or if we did over revved it or whatever, the the valve springs just wouldn't live. And and so when you broke a valve spring, you just you might as well knock yourself out of the race. It paid off that day. We uh, I think they said some guy. <laughs> It caused a big fight in the grandstand because some guy was hollering for Daryl, and uh, some guy told him to shut the heck up. Said, told him how many laps down he was, and he said, "You're crazy," you know, because he either he had gone and get him another beer, or when he got back, uh, we were back on the racetrack. So, <laughs> uh, but that was quite a day, you know. I can see right now. Uh, pictures stevie standing there with daryl right beside the car and and telling him to be calm be calm and that's that's really what she was doing i mean she i know she was she said everything's gonna be all right and we finished i think 11th that day that was a shining moment uh not only for myself but for the whole team 
and Daryl to be able to hold his cool and sit in the car through the whole experience. Now, Daryl's job was to take the shifter loose. And, I mean, he had a job to do uh, in the inside the car, and we practiced that also. You know, had him wrenches in there and everything. He knew exactly, you know, of course, Daryl was, he was a, I'm not going to say a real mechanic. <laughs> Daryl was pretty sharp. He yeah. was. Yeah. He, he was a pretty sharp mechanic. Had to be. Buddy, you go into the last race of 79, leading the championship by two points. How uptight were you about winning that whole deal? Well, um, let me just say this. Uh, we had... We had run uh, all year long, and like you said, the uh, the lead that we had had accomplished was depleted all the way down back to two points, and uh, and we were racing a guy named Richard Petty, and you know, and they 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 knew how to win championships, but um, we had some problems. You know, Daryl hit a car, we broke a, a vent tube off of the carburetor, and and it been a valve in the engine to make it run less efficient and so and i can put that on me i'm not going to put it on robert yates because i mean that was that was a situation where uh i should have checked the height of the uh, of the air cleaner but that's hindsight For children with chronic medical conditions, Victory Junction means friends, fun, freedom. That's because we provide a medically safe environment where kids who live in a world of hospitals and doctor's visits can laugh, play, and discover all they can be, all at no cost to their families. Victory Junction inspires confidence, builds self-esteem, and changes the life of every camper who comes through our gates. Find out how you can change a child's life. Go to victoryjunction.org. Steve, I played you a little bit of Buddy's interview before we started recording, and the grin on your face was well worth it. So tell me about the Buddy Parrot that you knew. Well, the Buddy Parrot that I know is still the same Buddy Parrot of today. He's very outgoing, very personable, uh, just and seems to really enjoy life and get the most out of it. And when I say a character, I mean a character. He'll do anything. Never knew a guy so active in getting the most out of life. I mean, he absolutely was into most everything and loved to tell stories and tell, you know, tall tales about himself and racing and and his friends. So uh, that was the Buddy Parrot that I knew. Now, that's one Buddy Parrot. I have to tell our listeners the absolute truth. There are two others. There was, yeah. <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> there was the one that worked very hard. And he had his own ideas of how a team and a car should be run. They didn't always mesh with everyone on the team. But he still stood by what he felt was the right thing to do. Then there was another buddy pair, the third buddy pair. As much as he loved to laugh and loved life and liked to have a good time, he didn't want to be around an upset Buddy Parrot. He was just as vigorous in his opposition to something as he was in his acceptance of something. In other words, he believed in what he believed, and he acted the way he wanted to act. And if somebody confronted him 
that's the Buddy Parrott you did not want to see. Now, I'm not putting him down for it. He was a strong personality no matter how you look at it. He was strong when he was mad, and he was strong when he was having fun and enjoying himself and working hard. That, so to me, it just was the dynamic force of his personality all the way around that made him what he was. The interview that I had with Buddy kind of showed all three aspects of his personality that you just mentioned. But the Buddy Parrot that I wanted to talk about today was the fun-loving yeah. Buddy Parrot. And, you know, <laughs> I will never forget sitting down with him and him tear loose to talking about streaking with Ray Fox Jr. and the prankster that Harry Hyde put him up to that and all that kind of thing. He also talked about jumping off the roof of the hotel in Griffin, Georgia, the weekend of the Atlanta race. You had said that you did see him doing yes. some diving exhibitions. Yeah. It was at Daytona. Yeah. It was at Daytona. Back in the days when the press and the team members all stayed in the same hotel, it was the July race. Came back from the track and uh, decided to go out and sit up by the pool. And I went out there, and there was this big commotion going on, a lot of splashing, a lot of yelling. And I looked up, and there's Buddy Parrott on the high board, diving off. <laughs> uh, he's doing one crazy routine after another. Yeah. A yeah. twist, a turn, a, a flop, whatever you want to look. He gets back out of the, of the pool, runs to the ladder, climbs up again, and does another dive. One after just time and time again. And finally, he saw me. He says, hey, Steve, come on. Get over here with me. Let's go. A double flip-flop, whatever the heck you want. <laughs> a double flip-flop. Yeah. <laughs> Not only no, buddy, but hell no. <laughs> but then I found out, and I think I talked to him a, a bit about it, if I recall, that he was an expert diver. Yeah, he actually dove in high school. Right. Yeah. He, he was like a champion diver, and of course, I, I didn't know that. Nobody did until that particular day. What a day. What a day it was. It was quite a spectacle. That's one side of Buddy Parrott's personality, the fun-loving personality. Another side that you mentioned was the more serious, get-it-done type personality, do-it-at-all-cost, whatever. And I think a situation that spoke to that was the pit road incident at Talladega where Grant Adcock spun and hit Gary Bentonhausen's car and pinned Don Miller in between and cost Don a leg. Yeah. And by all accounts, Buddy basically saved his life. Well, I've heard that story. I was not there. I heard that story, though. And uh, when we learned that it was Buddy who helped save Don's life that day, no one was really surprised because that's the kind of person Buddy was. You know, you've mentioned earlier that uh, he never backed off from a fight. Well, he never backed off from a challenge either. <laughs> yeah. You know? yeah. And if you were a friend of his or an associate of his, uh, you were protected by him. I've seen that more than once. Uh, the Don Miller story, like I said, I wasn't there, but I heard it. But I was at a couple of places where I saw Buddy take action to protect someone who worked for him or with him. No kidding, yeah, really? Absolutely. I don't know if Buddy wants me to tell this story, but I'm going to. It was at Rockingham in the lounge when something happened and some stranger busted a bottle over Buddy Barnes' head. Buddy was a crewman at the Red time. Red dog. Yeah, yeah, red dog. Yeah. And Buddy Parrott saw it, and he right away went after the guy. <laughs> that, wow. That crashed that bottle over Red Dog's head. And that guy saw Buddy coming like a charging bull and ran out of the lounge and out to the parking lot and out of sight. 
Okay, because he's just didn't want to have anything to do with Buddy. But that's Buddy. He saw something happen to a friend of his, an associate of his, and he was going to run to his defense. And the thing about it is, his wife Judy was there. I know that. I was there. A couple of others of his friends were there. Then when he came back in, he didn't chase the guy very far because the guy was long gone. But when he came back into the lounge, boom, he changed. Back to the old fun-loving buddy. Checked on his friend, talked to his wife, smiled at me. Same buddy. All over again. Just like that. Well, I think that's a natural transition into a discussion about Buddy Parrott, Daryl Waltrip, and Die Guard Racing because <laughs> let's just say that at least when it comes to Daryl and Die Guard, that wasn't the most harmonious of relationships. And I found a quote that Buddy had after the 1979 Southern 500 at Darlington. And Buddy talked about how he had a good relationship with DW, at least in the beginning. But there were some rough spots. DW had led 166 laps, but he slapped a wall trying to get around a slower car on lap 295. So it was getting down towards the end of the race. He had a pretty healthy lead. The win went to David Pearson, who was driving in relief of some rookie named Dell Earnhardt. But after that race, Buddy, uh, <laughs> Buddy was none too pleased with Daryl. In the September 6th, 1979 issue of Grand National Scene, Buddy said, and I quote, he was turning laps at 32.7 seconds. We told him to run at 34. There was no sense in pushing as hard as he was. All he needed to do was slow down and finish. We had the race won. So there he was calling his driver out in public. Yeah, he was, and uh, but he would correct. Yeah. Because Daryl did not need to drive that hard. In fact... At one point, he had a lap lead on the field. Did he really? Absolutely. Okay. And when he when he had that wreck, he lost that lead. And so naturally, Buddy was a bit upset that he was Daryl driving over his head needlessly, and it cost them the victory in the Southern 500. As a matter of fact, as we will discuss in just a few minutes, that whole 1979 season uh, was not the most harmonious between Daryl and Buddy. And Dygaard. Absolutely. Now, just as a side note, in this story that Jane Granger wrote, <laughs> two youngsters, Bill Elliott and Terry Labonte, stole a lot of thunder by running second and third, respectively, just <laughs> two laps behind Pearson. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. How about that? Pearson wins the race by two laps, and people say, oh, they missed the good old days. <laughs> they no, always that, that good. It was just two laps. Yeah, just. <laughs> Now, something else that I thought was really interesting, after Darrell won at Michigan, he had like a 229-point lead in the championship standings. Very well could have put it on cruise control and just coasted to the championship, but after that, that lead started falling away by a few points each race. At Martinsville, Darrell loses an engine, and Buddy Parrott leads an 11-minute engine change. An 11-minute right. change in engines. You could do that in those days. NASCAR allowed teams to uh, change engines during the course of a race. And the good teams always performed them just miraculously. You know, I remember one time that's also at Martinsville, Junior Johnson's team changed an engine in 13 minutes. However, in a very short time afterward, NASCAR outlawed the practice of changing an engine during the course of the race. If you blew an engine, you blew. That's it. You're out. The reason they did that was for safety. 
as you might imagine, hot liquids, hot oil, yeah. hot water, yeah. pouring all over the place, yeah. among other things. When they're yanking out an engine, then more than one guy got burned during the course of this. So that's why NASCAR put a halt to the practice. They go to Ontario, and Daryl is now leading Richard Petty by two points. Two points. Is there any way to put into perspective the just overwhelming pressure that Daryl Waltrip and Buddy Parrott must have been feeling at that time? Well, a great deal of pressure. Number one, they only had a two-point lead. All it took to lose that was to have Richard finish one position ahead of him. Yeah, that's one position one way or the other. That's right. So it was all over. And number two, they had never won a championship together. Daryl never won one in his career. Uh, Richard was working on number seven. Seven. So as you well know, he's got the experience in how to win a championship. And I think he was clearly the uh, calmer and cooler customer out there in Ontario than uh, Daryl or Buddy were because he didn't consider himself facing that much pressure. Why would he? He'd won championships before. This was nothing new to him. Now, Steve, I'm going to share what happened after Ontario in next week's episode. So give us a sneak preview of what happened after that race. Well, it was a kind of a tumultuous finish of the year for uh, Buddy and Daryl and Dygard because Buddy was released, fired, uh, about a week after that race, which I thought was an unfair thing to do because, after all, you can't win a championship until you're in a position to win a championship. Yes, sir. And Buddy Perry did a lot to put Daryl there. Uh, so I'm not really too sure of why they did that. I think it was a difference of opinion. And as I said earlier, Buddy was the kind of guy, he was going to stand by what he believed in. And I don't think he was going to sit there and let, take the blame for losing that championship. And as a result of that, uh, he came to a crossroads with Die Guard and Daryl, and he just was let go. Listeners, I'm telling you, you do not want to miss next week's episode because Buddy talks about being released and also a few other things. So tune in next week. I'm Rusty Wallace, and you're listening to the Scene Vault Podcast. Steve, I don't know about you, but I'm kind of enjoying this Twitter question thing that we've been doing because we're getting some awesome questions, some very thoughtful questions. Yes, sir. Now, this week, we had a couple that I wanted to touch on. Number one, Michael Metzger from at Start In Park blog asked, after you both left scene, what did you do? Continue to work in NASCAR or get into other fields and interests? Thanks. So, Steve, what did you do? Didn't you basically retire? Yeah, it was the year was 2010, and uh, that was the year that scene went away. It, it was a victim of the Internet. Uh, it was a victim of the technology of the times. Like many other printed publications, it suffered from that, uh, let's call it the Internet, assault. And uh, so much so that it was forced to go under. And uh, at that very same time, I had told the powers that be that uh, I was going to go ahead and, and retire. That's how the timing worked out. I mean, I was going to retire before 
seen folded, but seen folded in the year I retired. So that was a, a very strange turn of events for me because I felt like, uh, you know, scene would go on and, and be the publication that it was and continue to hold its great respect from the fans, but that wasn't the case at all. So basically, I, I pretty much stuck to retirement. Oh, I go to races. I go to anywhere from six to ten a year, and I have written for a few websites, just writing some commentary, sort of to keep my fingers in it, you know, beer money. <laughs> that's about the size of it. So that's what I'm doing today. And I got to tell you, Rick, I'm enjoying uh, my retirement, but I still have uh, a great affinity for the sport of NASCAR and mostly for the people and the fans. I don't think there's a better group of, of uh, fans for, for any sport out there than the NASCAR fans. Was it difficult to walk away after all those years? In one sense, yes, because it's something you've dedicated your life to. And you've been there for so long and know so many people that it, it, it's somewhat tough to, to leave all that. But on the other hand, I don't miss the travel. <laughs> <laughs> that got, was the best part of the job, and that was the worst part oh of the job. Oh, man. Yeah. I got so I hated airports. Did that, Yeah, well. And, and it does, but it's a grind. When you stop and think about it, it's a grind. And I'll say one other thing, too. All those years that I was working in this sport, I would, it took me a long time to realize that maybe I am not doing right by my family. Maybe, yeah. you know, yeah. you're absent for a lot of things that go on. I like to think that I, that I was there for a lot of it and most of it, but still it nags at you that uh, you aren't there for certain things that uh, your family does or needs you to be there, and you're not there. So that does weigh on you after a time. Of course, in my particular case, I guess I had to grow up, you know, to realize that that, that was going on. And, and since the retirement, of course, has been a much better family type situation well now rick you know they they've all heard about me in my retirement uh what about you i know a few of the things you've done <laughs> since your scene days well steve as you know i wound up leaving scene i had written a column about a team and i stand by that column and a team official wound up writing a letter to the editor back i didn't care but i got kind of hurt by the headline that was written by a couple of my coworkers. Don't know who it was, but I wound up just getting upset and I wound up leaving and went to work for NASCAR as the PR person for the Bush series. <laughs> and Steve, let's just say that me working for NASCAR in that position worked out about as well as a fart in a diving helmet. Ooh, heavy. <laughs> and I was invited to no longer work for them. 11 months of the day after I started, honest to goodness, my first reaction was to thank the guy who let me go. It was initially a struggle because for several years, I had had this notion about myself that I was the most important person in the Bush series. Mm. Uh -huh. well, no, I could see that. You know, I wrote the book on yeah, the history of the Bush I was series. I going to say that. I was the Bush series editor for Winston Cup scene, the I best did. paper in the world. <laughs> And then I go to work for NASCAR as the PR person for the Bush Series. And Steve, the weekend after NASCAR shoved me out the back door, they had a race without me there. Ah. And Steve, I got to tell you, I'm almost ashamed to say how much of a shock that was. Hmm. For a couple of years there, I really kind of struggled with who I was, you know, uh. because I'd been a big shot in right. the Bush Series. 
I taught high school for a year and a half, and I found out that as a teacher, I really miss journalism. (laughs) 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 And I had an opportunity to get back into the sport, kind of went away, and I got really frustrated. But I can tell you the exact moment that things turned around. And you talked about family. Yeah, I did. Yeah, you did. I got frustrated when things weren't working out with me getting back into the sport. And one night, in front of my wife and kids, I made the statement, I used to be somebody. I I can sort of understand that position, you know, because uh, let's face it, uh, when I was retiring from scene, uh, I thought I would retire leaving an organization and a newspaper that was tops in its field. Yes, sir. Yeah. Unfortunately, it went away. Yeah. And, you know, you get a sense of loss when that happens. Well, let me tell you what happened. My wife, Jeannie, and I have twin sons, Adam and Jesse. And Adam and Jesse were probably, by that time when I made that statement, they were probably seven, eight years old. And Adam heard me say that. And Steve, he crawled up in my lap and he hugged me and he said, you are somebody. You're my daddy. Oh, man. And I say that now, I get chills because in that moment, my perspective changed. Did I miss working in racing? Sure. But it wasn't who I was. It wasn't my identity. Hmm. So from that moment on, it became okay that I wasn't working in NASCAR anymore. You mentioned the things I've gotten to do since then. I mean, I wound up writing some books about yeah. one of my other passions. Very good books, uh, too. You know, about human space flight. All right. One of those books, Go Flight, The Unsung Heroes of Mission Control, was turned into a documentary that you can see on right. Netflix now. Right. And man, right. it is a, it's just an absolutely beautiful film. And I, you know, I'm saying that, and obviously I'm biased, but, you know, from all the reviews that we've had, people love the film. I'm now to the point where I love NASCAR. I obviously love NASCAR history, but would I go back to traveling like I did? Nope. Yeah. Absolutely not. Well, in my opinion, Rick, ever since you left NASCAR and the things you've done, you have written books, you've helped produce documentaries, and they've all been successful. As far as I'm concerned, you're a regular Renaissance fan. <laughs> Well, I definitely have eclectic taste, that's for sure. Now, Steve, another couple of tweets that we had deal with something that's been in the news lately. Avery at A-B-R-U-G-H-9-4 and Pat Hicks at Pat underscore Hicks underscore. They both wanted to know what we thought about the possible return of NASCAR to the Nashville Fairgrounds Racetrack, Rockingham, and North Wilkesboro. So, Steve, what do you think? Well, I am among the first to tell you that as a member of the media, I don't think those three tracks should have ever gone away from NASCAR, Uh, especially uh, the historic track at North Wilkesboro and, of course, Rockingham as well and and Nashville. But I'm going to tell you, they're not coming back, not to cup racing anyway. I, I can see NASCAR eventually joining forces with those tracks to have some other of its circuits compete. But I just don't think that cup racing is going to go back. First of all, it costs a lot of money for somebody to restore a track like North Wilkesboro. It is a possibility that if somebody wants to take the risk and spend the money to do all the necessary renovations, including not only fan amenities, but safety 
as well for the drivers. You know, the safer barriers and everything that comes with a racetrack today. That's going to take a lot of expense, uh, but that's what it's going to take for NASCAR to even consider a return of any of its circuits. I think of the three tracks, Rockingham is probably in the best shape to hold a race the soonest because they had made some improvements before the Winston Cup division left. Got a nice media center, have a really nice press box. The track is in fairly good shape. I think that Rockingham would be in the best shape. I agree. As for the other two, I covered races at both, North Wilkesboro and Nashville. And speaking just from a media standpoint, I would dearly love to see a handful of the current media members go to North Wilkesboro (laughs) (laughs) and set up shop in the media center that was there right underneath Victory Lane. How big was the media center at North Wilkesboro? It wasn't as big as a couple of broom closets. Uh, No, it wasn't. It wasn't at all. And the press box was, you know. You could seat about 25 guys in the press box. and That's it. 25? They would have had to have been really, really close friends. (laughs) (laughs) Well, believe it or not, most of them were. (laughs) (laughs) That is one aspect that people would have to consider because many of the media members today work out of the press box or the media center. Well, yeah, you have to consider that. And it goes back to the point I was trying to make earlier, the expense involved. Is yeah. tremendous. Yeah. Uh, especially at North Wilkesboro. I have not seen Nashville. Uh, and like you said, Rockham was the last to make improvements. And I think if they wanted uh, to stage a race there, they'd have the least amount of work to do. But North Wilkesboro is crumbling down. Yeah. And, yeah. and uh, that, that would be a, a tremendous, tremendous expense involved in that track. But North Wilkesboro till the day it went away, was the last vestige of how it used to be in NASCAR in its pioneer days. I absolutely agree. It, it, it was like they there was no big hoopla, no big uh, uh, press conferences and everything. They just more or less said, we're going to have a race on Sunday. So y'all go to church and come after. <laughs> you can walk yeah. up and buy a ticket yeah. at North Wilkesboro and enjoy a race. And the drivers loved the track. And the competition there was always very, very good. But the times passed it by, and it just not could not keep up. Another racetrack that I think would be great for the actual track that would be great for racing would be Nashville. Of the three, I think that they're the best situated in a major metropolitan area. Right. But you mentioned the safety aspect. They would need to have right. safer barriers. Everything, everything that comes with it. So, you know, that's one thing to consider. And again, the media facilities, when I covered Bush Series races there, the media facility was a very small trailer. Right. Didn't have internet access or anything like that. The press box, and I'm sure you covered races there. If you were sitting in the press box, the top row of the grandstands, if they stood up, you couldn't see the racetrack. Right. They were on the same level. And, you know, (laughs) Bill Kaiser, if you're out there listening, I'm so glad you didn't get us into a brawl (laughs) because he kept, he would keep banging on the glass and tell everybody to sit down and they'd flip him off. And I was like, Hey, I'm not with him. (laughs) (laughs) Of the three, I think that Rockingham is best suited facility wise. Nashville is best suited location wise. And North Wilkesboro is best suited historically. Right. Absolutely. I agree with you 100%, but I will reiterate what I said earlier. Unless we see 
the money spent and the changes made, no NASCAR. And I think that's a very long shot that it will ever be back, especially in a cup capacity. And I think that another thing that has to be pointed out is NASCAR did go back to Rockingham twice in the form of the truck series. Right. And it didn't work out. Right. So when and if this happens, fans are going to have to put up or shut up. Exactly. And that's the and reason, show up. That's the reason Rockham died. The, the the lack of attendance by the fans. It wasn't the track amenities. And it wasn't the track itself. Some great racing that one mile track. And it wasn't the media facilities or the, the competitor facilities. The reason it died is no one showed up, comparatively speaking. And I haven't met a better person in all of NASCAR than Andy Hillenberg. I mean, I'd follow Andy anywhere. For him to go to the lengths that he did to reopen that place and then for it not to work out as well as what everybody would have hoped, you know. That's, that's a shame. I, I think all these Twitter keyboard warriors, when and if this happens, they need to show up. I agree completely. Well, Steve, like I said earlier, this is our first episode of the new year. Have you made any resolutions? Uh, no. (laughs) (laughs) You've already done it all. (laughs) I don't know about that, but I always break them, so why bother? All right. Follow us on Twitter, if you would, at The Scene Vault. It's a great feed. I love posting the covers, sometimes content. It's really popular. I think it's gotten a lot of uh, attention for Winston Cup scene, Grand National scene. So you guys check that out. With that said, Steve, patreon.com slash the scene vault podcast, paypal.me slash the scene vault podcast, iTunes, leave us a review. Steve, thank you, man. Hey, thank you, Rick. Once again, it's been a pleasure and a lot of fun.